Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So please uh, sit in a comfortable position. So uh, first let me say uh, how grateful I am that we can all be here together. It's an amazing thing that uh, we're sitting on Zafus and Zabutons Mm -hmm. designed somewhere in uh, Korea or Japan, uh, meditating in a style developed in India and Thailand, um, bowing in the way that you would in many Asian countries, uh, doing this with kippas and taluses on our body, uh, singing Jewish songs and doing this whole thing uh, in this building. (laughs) Who would have ever thought when they were constructing this building that we would be doing this together in this way? (laughs) And then, not to mention... uh, Uh, the strange and incredible romantic art. (laughs) It took me just a little while to realize what I was looking at, uh, that each painting uh, might actually be saying the same thing uh, over and over again. And so uh, Miriam and I are going to use these paintings as the theme of the next retreat. Um, also uh, Judaism and Buddhism are massive categories and old systems the way I think about religion is really just a long conversation that's been going on for hundreds if not thousands of years by people really struggling to figure out what's important and how to open up to what's important with each other. And so although we could have a very deep conversation about the parallels and the differences between the yoga and, or the, the Jew, Jewish and Buddhist traditions, I say yoga because I'm always talking about the difference between yoga and Buddhist traditions. But, um, uh, when I watch Miriam bow, And uh, when I hear her talk, uh, I feel that there's no difference at all. So it's funny how the differences can appear on paper, but actually the way they show up in your life, it's hard to tell that there's any difference at all. And actually that's what interests me more than anything. When I was a kid, as I was saying yesterday, I love chanting, and I love Torah. The rabbis said, the Torah is the history of us as Jewish people. It's the laws and the values that govern us and inspire us to go out in the world and do good things. 
Um, but actually, that's not what I heard in the Torah. For me, the Torah seemed to be, I don't know if you could say page after page, but page after page, the Torah seemed to be a series of encounters between what you can talk about and what you can't talk about. Every single page, there's a story about what you can talk about, what you can't talk (coughs) about, and how they interact. And in that way, I think the Torah and the lessons of the Torah are the same as the process of meditation and the process of bowing. Because when we sit down on our cushion and we follow the breath, we're right there at the intersection of what you can talk about and what you can't talk about. And maybe that's what causes so much anxiety when people learn to meditate, is you sit down and you're face-to-face with God. You're face-to-face with what you can't get to by thinking. And that encounter counts for everything. And the byproduct of that encounter is gratitude. Let me read uh, what one Zen teacher says about gratitude. People often ask me how the Buddhists answer the question, does God exist? The other day I was walking along the river. The wind was blowing. Suddenly I thought, oh, the air really exists. We know that the air is there, but unless the wind blows against our face, we're not aware of it. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. You know the air is there, but until the wind comes, you don't realize it's there. Here in the wind, I was suddenly aware, yes, it's really there. And the sun too, I was completely unaware of the sun, and then suddenly aware of the sun, shining through the bare trees, its warmth, its brightness, and all this completely free, simply there for us to enjoy. And without my knowing it, completely spontaneously, my two hands came together, and I realized I was making a bow. And it occurred to me that this is all that matters, that we can bow. Take a deep bow. Just that. Just that. So beautiful. So when you sit down on your cushion, which I like to think of sitting down right in the middle of your life, naturally we see that we have some resistance. I think if there's no resistance in your meditation practice, something's not right. Because uh, biologically, uh, we're all geared uh, to resist change. So some resistance in practice is a good thing. It's showing you that there's some change on the horizon. But I think naturally we're all desperate to avoid some truths about our lives, to avoid this encounter. It's so interesting that at the bottom, what we all crave is deep intimacy with something larger and more mysterious than that singular narrative we have spinning around with us at the axis. And even though we're all craving a deeper connection, it seems that we're also organized to do everything we can to avoid it. And we try and figure this out in all kinds of ways. 
we distract ourselves, it helps a little bit. We go to therapy, it helps. We shop, it helps. We join communities. But like all these other things, we can hide in community also. We go to shul, we go to synagogue, but sometimes we go to synagogue and the prayers or the way they're delivered are not our prayers. A prayer is an encounter with the deepest questions that you have in your life. And I think that meditation practice is a way of preparing yourself for those encounters with those questions. And these questions come about from what in the Buddhist tradition is called dukkha, which I touched on yesterday. Um, In the Buddha's first sermon in a place called Deer Park, Uh, he tells us what dukkha means. Uh, Here's what he says. Uh, Birth is dukkha. Has anybody seen a baby being born? It's a beautiful thing. And also, it's dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is painful, sorry, separation from what is dear is painful and dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. The whole psychophysical condition is dukkha. So meditation, uh, like prayer, is about honestly coming face to face with our lives. And built into our life is this experience of dukkha. This experience of being uh, satisfied, unsatisfied, satisfied, unsatisfied, satisfied, unsatisfied. And in meditation practice, what we're learning how to do is to open up to this experience of satisfaction, unsatisfaction, satisfaction, unsatisfaction, seeing its impermanent nature and not clinging. And then seeing that whenever there's clinging, there's dukkha. It can be so subtle or it can be very dramatic. I like to think, you know, if you start with sound, it's very easy. Notice sounds, but then you start to see every time you hear a sound, the mind grips the sound and then starts adding to it. I like it, I don't like it. You've been doing this for a few days. And then when you can do this with sound, you can do this with breathing, just to feel the breath without manipulating it. And then when you can do it with the breath, you start doing it with sensations in the body. These are called the stages of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, then mindfulness of mental states, and then eventually you practice mindfulness of all phenomena. Whatever shows up, we can bring present-centered attention so that we can respond creatively rather than just reacting to what's showing up. And I think that the byproduct of that whole process is gratitude. Nowadays, because mindfulness has uh, been taken over by science, uh, if you don't know about this, just Google mindfulness and you will... Notice that the word mindfulness attracts research money 
<laughs> and mindfulness, as it becomes secularized, is coming to mean paying attention. But I think it doesn't capture that the heart of mindfulness practice is, uh, is a process of learning how to have gratitude in a devotional way for what's arising and passing away in each and every moment. Mindfulness teaches us, through giving our attention, how to become more generous, how to forgive, how to let go, and how to respond in a more creative way to what's showing up in our experience. It's much more than just paying attention to something. To me, the term paying attention seems to be ethically indeterminate. It, it doesn't uh, 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 give us a sense of a motivation and creativity and action. More on that later. There's a wonderful uh, Japanese poet named Sagyo, a medieval poet, um, and I want you to hear his description of his meditation. He's asked uh, to write a poem about his meditation practice. Uh, listen to how he defines it. Whatever it is, I cannot understand it. Then gratitude overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. Whatever it is, I can't understand it. Do you see this theme of Buddhist quotes I'm giving you? I don't know. <laughs> That's the soft palate releasing. I always think it's only really the dumb people who get meditation practice. Because they're always like, I have no idea. Uh, completely open. Whatever it is, I cannot understand it although gratitude overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. Um, the famous, brilliant Christian mystic and theologian, Thomas Merton, who is someone I encourage you to read, I encourage all of you to read Thomas Merton if you haven't before. Um, Thomas Merton and the Dalai Lama were close friends and uh, he also studied with D.T. Suzuki and uh, was very, very interested in uh, Buddhist meditation. Um, here's his description of encountering Buddhist meditation. When I am liberated by silence, when I'm no longer involved in the measuring of my life, but in the living of it, I discover a form of prayer in which there is effectively no distraction and my whole life becomes a prayer. So naturally, as a Zen person, I would substitute prayer for meditation. So what he's talking about is what we're doing today, which is letting go of the way we measure our life. So uh, last night, uh, I was working on ideas for the talk today. And I thought, what is Jewish meditation? I mean, what does that mean? What, what is Jewish about the meditation we're doing? So I decided to make a little list of how meditation is helpful for Jewish people. <laughs> so uh, here is my list. Uh, number one... Stop making your problems worse. If you learn how to sit still, you will still have all the same problems. Uh, it's really important to have problems. What would you meditate on <laughs> if you had no problems? What would inspire you to meditate? Uh, I once had a yoga teacher from uh, India named Patabi Joyce tell me um, that it would be really bad if I was ever reborn in a heaven realm 
because I wouldn't practice. (laughs) So, number one, uh, stop making your problems worse. Do you know what I mean by that? When you sit, you start to see how you compound your troubles. Again and again and again and again and again. Uh, Number two, developing kindness towards what's arising. So when you encounter sadness, when you encounter joy, when you encounter loneliness, you encounter whatever's arising from a place of stillness. And then there can be a deeper intimacy with what's there. Because really, what makes us neurotic is when something arises, but there's just no space around it. So in meditation, we're learning how to create space. So there's an invitation for whatever to arise, to arise and unfold and change. Number three, you are on a path that is taking you home. When you meditate, you begin to feel that home is not separate from where you are in each and every moment. I have a friend who's a musician who tours. Her whole life, all she does is tour, pretty much. And uh, after one retreat, she came on, she tattooed on her wrist, home. So she remembers whatever she's doing. When she plays guitar, if you, on her wrist she can see whenever she's making chord changes, the word home. Uh, number four, when you get still and space opens up, gratitude naturally arises in that space. In other words, we could talk about gratitude or love as something to cultivate. But actually, gratitude, like love, has nothing to do with us. Mm. We're so used to saying things like, I love you, as if I had love and I could give it to you or not give it to you, depending on how many chores you did. (laughs) Can I take out the garbage? Sure, I love you. But actually, it's in the absence of self-reference that love arises. And last, taking action with what arises of its own accord, out of the space of not knowing. So in meditation practice, We enter this space of not knowing, and out of that space, actions arise that you couldn't have rehearsed. So maybe uh, you're sitting, and some anger shows up, some agitation shows up. And if you weren't sitting and you were by yourself, maybe you would do something stupid. Like for me, I, I write emails that I regret. I actually have this thing now on my computer that you can download in uh, Google where it stalls your outgoing messages for three to five minutes. You can set it. And I've actually used it a few times where I've sent an email and then you know I've gone to get a glass of water and then I come back and think, oh my God, did I say that? And then you can stop it because it stalled it. And I wish there could be an app like that that you could put inside your body <laughs> so you could slow down time and press pause. So this last point is very important, which is that the first process of meditation practice is stopping. The second phase is entering the space of not knowing. And the third phase is to trust the loving actions that arise from that space of meditative practice. One action might be doing nothing. 
Like, oh, boredom is arising and I'm not going to get up. I'm going to learn how to work with boredom. That's an action. That action affects your neurology, your cognition, it affects your culture, it affects your body, it affects the body, body politic. If you can tolerate boredom, you won't shop so much. That's why soon meditation is going to become illegal because it's bad for the gross national product. So this is all to say that practice slowly uncovers something that really guides us. And gratitude shows up uninvited. And so gratitude is about moving from suspicion to trust. Being suspicious of other people, suspicious about what's showing up in our hearts, and being able to trust whatever's there, because we can work with it. I've been, uh, some of you know, I just came back from France. It's been more than five days, so my water is now officially um, Canadian. And um, when I was in France, I was, uh, this this one day, uh, someone lent us a car, and so we went and took a a drive, my partner Karina and I and our eight-month-old We went and drove, and he fell asleep, and it started raining. And so we just drove around, and he had the longest nap of his life, almost three hours. And so we just drove in the rain and in the clouds, and uh, um, I started having all these memories of uh, when I went to France when I was 18. Because uh, after the war, my family dispersed, and some of them ended up in France, and um, from Poland. And um, when I was 18, I went to go visit uh, these cousins in different parts of uh, Nîmes and Marseille, various cities. Anyways, I went to go visit my, un- uh, my cousin Gerard, and uh, we went into his backyard. I-, I mean, I don't know if it was his backyard or just the land around his house. And there was brambles and broken branches, and um, he said, uh, be careful where you walk because the ground is uneven and you can twist your ankle. Uh, And the weeds were so thick that you couldn't actually see the ground, but you could feel with your feet that it'd be really smooth and then there'd be these strange dips. And uh, I said, uh, what's the ground made out of? And he said, well, this is all limestone. And when you feel those grooves under your feet, those are the tracks from Roman chariot wheels that uh, created indentation in the limestone. And if you follow the track through the forest, which we then did, um, you end up at an aqueduct that crosses the river and was a bridge for water and for chariots. And I couldn't believe this because I had grown up in Canada And I think in Canada, we have this idea that we know deep in our hearts that this is not really our home. That we weren't really from this place. And that we've sort of ended up on this land that doesn't really belong to us. Especially if you grow up in cities, you can feel this way. You know the city pretty well, but you know this isn't really where you're from. Even though you might not know where you're from. Uh, So anyways, it was the first time I ever had the feeling of um, being connected to something really, really old. And um, that it was a path that had been covered over. So I was thinking about this uh, last week, not even a week, less than a week ago, and... um, I was thinking this is exactly how meditation practice works, how spiritual practice works, is that 
even if you don't know what your path is, what lineage of Judaism you're from. You know that when you practice and when you really bow and you really chant and you really look into the faces of the people in your community, you feel that path that gets covered over by being busy and distracted (coughs) and undernourished. It brings you back to this path, even if you don't know what the path is exactly. (coughs) I think if you meditate every day, I've been meditating every day since 1994. In 1994, I, uh, I can't believe I'm telling all these stories. I don't, I, I'm remembering all this because we had a long car ride together. And she was asking me very personal questions. And I was giving her like bigger answers than I think she was expecting. <laughs> there wasn't a topic we didn't talk about. Um, uh, when I when I was uh, 18, 19, I uh, I quit a job. I I had a job working for uh, the actor Paul Newman. I I was um, uh, hired to do uh, PR for him. It's a long story. <laughs> and uh, so I traveled with him for two years. And um, everybody around me said, "You are so lucky." And I loved him. He was uh, a gentleman from another generation. Uh, Such elegance, I really admired him. And I told you yesterday about my uncle. uh, Well, I met Paul just a few years after my uncle died. And I recognized in him the same spirit. And anyways, after two years, I realized this wasn't the right career for me. And everybody around me said, you're crazy. You have your, you have your life set. Uh, you're making good money. Uh, you're surrounded by an incredible network, which I was. And there was, a, I could see my life all laid out like a perfect road. But in my heart, I knew that this wasn't the path for me. That I could be more useful in another way. And all I wanted to do was meditate. And uh, everybody around me thought I was crazy, especially my mom. (laughs) Anyways, um, one day, I woke up in the middle of the night um, and uh, was wandering around a house, my girlfriend's house, and I decided I had to get out of there. So I left, I went to the airport, I got on a plane, and I flew to go see Paul. I arrived after a red-eye flight. I walked into his office, and he said, You look terrible. Mm -hmm. And I said, I feel terrible. I said, I have to quit. He said, What are you going to do? I said, Well, I was reading Joseph Campbell. And he said when he was young, he went to the forest and read for five years. So that's what I'm going to do. So he said, that's amazing. My secretary, she should have been an anthropologist. And he started naming all the people who work with him and what they really wanted to do. And it was the beginning of March, the end of February. And he said, I'm going to pay you for the whole rest of the year. And I want you to leave right away and go do whatever you have to do. And we never spoke again. And, uh, and he wrote a check. And I, I left. I went back to Toronto. Uh, I bought a Volkswagen van. And I drove to Algonquin Park. And I stayed there. Uh, and I said to myself, I'm going to stay here until I can sit still. Because to me, I felt that no matter what I ended up doing with my life, if I couldn't have that encounter with something deeper than everything that I thought about, that I would just go in circles and I probably would die young. 
Not not that I had an addiction or some, you know, but just that I... How do you make a decision? So I wasn't going to tell you that story, but I started the sentence saying, I've been meditating every day since 1994 or 5. And, um, and it's true. And if, if you practice every day, and it doesn't matter if it's a meditation practice, some kind of contemplative practice, if you do it every day, you start to feel that there's a path underneath your feet. And from time to time, we really need help. And then we have a path to turn to that's deeper than the path offered by our culture. It's deeper than the corporate path. Another thing I really love about Jewish practice is that Jews have no idea what God is. It seems built into this tradition is this struggle right at this intersection of articulating and knowing that you can't articulate God. Adonai Echad, God is one. We know what that is, and we don't know what that is. When I hear Adonai Echad, the way I translate it is, how do I love? How can I enter that space between what I know and what I know I can't know with my whole heart and my whole body? How can you be in relationship with a person right at the intersection of knowing them and knowing that you can't know them? When we lit the Havdalah candle and Aaron was holding it up really high like a male statue of liberty. (laughs) You know the Statue of Liberty is Jewish. So is the Buddha, by the way. (laughs) Um, Miriam said if you look at your nails you can see the reflection of the candle but underneath it it's dark and then she said it's the same thing with your eyes you can see the reflection of the candle the light in your eye and behind it it's dark Well, other people are like that. You can know them, and the more you know them, the more you don't know them. And the same is true with your own life. You know who you are, and also sometimes all the knowing who you are gets really stale. I taught one-on-one a woman who's a famous feminist uh, uh, philosopher who lives in uh, Berkeley, California. And one day after uh, we meditated together, whenever I was in California, I would always go to her house and teach her. Uh, She didn't like being in groups, so she liked just private instruction. And then one day she said, all my life, I've been using my gender as a political instrument. It's so important for me to be a woman and to articulate life as a woman. And she said, for the first time meditating today, I had a break from that. And you could see on her face, like, something (laughs) letting go. The importance of our identity, 
the importance of knowing somebody you love and also recognizing that behind that there's something that you can't know. Just like your breath, you can't know it. When you inhale, God is exhaling. And when you exhale, God is inhaling. Can you feel that? When you die, and when you're born, it happens on a breath. When you're born, you're born on an inhale. Well, you can imagine that when you're born, God is exhaling and pushing you out into the world. And when you die, you die on an exhale. It's like God inhaling you back. And it's easy for us to think about this as birth and death. But actually that's happening every moment. Every moment you're coming alive. Every moment you're passing away. And you meditate on this until you recognize your life is so fragile. And then some gratitude arises. So I'd like to uh, just round out what I'm speaking about this afternoon um, with, with a sort of uh, another teaching from the Buddhist tradition that I think can contribute um, to our discussion about gratitude. Um, in Mahayana Buddhism, which is a later development of early Buddhism, there is something called the bodhisattva vow. This is a recognition that everything is interdependent and that what brings us the most joy is when we serve interdependence. The bodhisattva vow is a vow to serve life. So, what this has to do with our practice is when you learn how to be present with what's showing up in your life and to take care of your agitation and your anger and your reactivity, then you start to feel more free. You feel more free. And when you begin to feel more free and less preoccupied with yourself, then you begin to feel more deeply the pain of others. If we're all interconnected, then you can't be free if other people are suffering. And this is a paradox you can't escape. And the only response is to serve others. To me, this is also at the heart of Jewish teaching. You can't get happy by yourself. A few years ago, I was assisting my teacher on a retreat. Um, some of you have complained that the sitting has been very hard. Uh, you wouldn't believe what retreats are in the tradition that I was trained in. 
Anyways, uh, we had a long retreat in the wintertime. This was in Connecticut. My job was to assist my teacher, uh, which is a great practice, actually. And uh, on the first day, uh, a man in his mid-80s who studied with her for a long time, who was quite ill, I didn't know what he was ill with, uh, he came looking very fragile to the retreat center. He lived nearby. And he said, I can't be a resident on the retreat, and I know it's full, but would it be okay if I sat... uh, in the morning, and just had the meditation, shared the meditation with everybody who's starting the retreat. And so I went and asked the teacher, I said, Roshi, is it okay if he comes and sits? And she said, oh yeah, yeah, just get him a chair. And then I got him a chair, and he said, no, no, I don't want a chair, I want to sit on the ground. So I helped him get on the ground. Um, I remember his body was so fragile. Have you ever helped somebody who you know, is at the end. And he sat so upright. It was so inspiring. And then, the next sit, he was there again. And then again and again. And then the next day, he was there again. And then, on the tenth day, he was still sitting there. Same spot. And at the end of silent retreats, we have a circle where we talk as we break silence. And someone said to him, Why did you sit for ten days? You said you were only going to sit for one session. And he said, Well, when I sat down, I was sitting next to this young guy who was 20, and he was so agitated. So I said to myself, I'm going to sit beside him until he can sit still. So I stayed the whole retreat. So that's the bodhisattva vow. So tender, but clear. When you sit down like this, it's not just for you. You sit still, you might think, oh, I'm just trying to connect with my inhale and exhale. But the quality of your sitting affects the person beside you and behind you. And when you go home from this retreat, you might think to yourself, oh, I was a failure, I was so busy. But actually, the quality in your body of the practice uh, will be felt by other people. When you have your needs met, the basic ones, shelter, leisure time, Once you have your basic needs met, what do you do next? Fancier restaurants? Nicer socks? Another car? Another renovation? I really feel that once your basic needs are met, there's only two things left to do. Take care of yourself and take care of other people. And those two things aren't separate. When you learn how to quiet your mind, you can touch something deeper than all your stories about your life. And that affects other people. It rewires you. And to me, when you're inspired in that way, Buddhist practice and Jewish practice are exactly the same thing. When Jewish practice gets going, it has nothing to do with being Jewish. When Buddhist practice gets going, the term Buddhism is just a good word.
So thank you very much. We have some time now uh, for a short break, and then we're going to have the individual meetings. So please check which one you're signed up for and um, go to the appropriate location. Um, and uh, Aaron, um, do you want to put up your hand so everyone knows who you are? The Statue of Liberty Bodhisattva um, is going to take some photographs uh, for the rest of the retreat. Um, if you don't want your photograph taken, or there's a particular side you like better, <laughs> um, then please let them know. Um, personally, I think it's really wonderful to archive events like this. And, um, but if you don't want your photograph taken, uh, just let him know. And uh, he'll do whatever he can to avoid you. <laughs> Where will the photos be used? I, I think that we have no idea. <laughs> Could you two say where the sessions are? The, no. Mm -hmm. I'm meeting with people on the first floor. There's a room on the way to the dining room. You'll just see it on the left-hand side. I'm meeting with people on the third floor. Fourth floor. Fourth floor in the room with a psychoanalytic couch. <laughs> it's a non-room. It's a hallway. Yeah. It's very zen because it's a non-room. <laughs> Silence? Yeah, we're going to continue with our silence all the way through till tomorrow. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much.